Welcome to Scuba Shack Radio, Episode 11, recorded Sunday, August 4th, 2019. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to this latest episode of Scuba Shack Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Cinturapino. Well, we flipped the calendar over to August um, here in 2019 and uh, just closed out July 2019 in Connecticut, which was the uh, warmest uh, July on record here in Connecticut. It averaged about 4.6 degrees above normal for the month which is just pretty incredible. Uh, we had quite a few 90-degree days with some high humidity, and we even touched the 100-degree mark there uh, once during the month. For those of you who are uh, reading my blog out there at Scuba Shack website or are listening to this podcast, you know that uh, I'm a firm believer in such a thing as climate change. I think it's real. I think there's global warming is happening at an incredible pace with the greenhouse gases. And uh, the July here in Connecticut was indicative of that particular uh, event occurring. We did, however, experience some really great dive conditions in Jamestown, Rhode Island last weekend for our open water dives with water temperatures at 70 degrees, which made it very nice for our seven new certified divers. And then uh, we'll be heading back down to Dutch Springs in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania this next weekend for some some more training and diving with our drive and dive. And then uh, also we'll be conducting a deep uh, diver specialty class down there next weekend. So still diving strong here in uh, New England. If you read through the many different dive magazines, things like Alert Diver from Dan or Dive Training Magazine or uh, magazines like Sport Diver uh, or Scuba Diving, you'll come across articles from time to time that talk about the difficult situations that divers uh, might find themselves in sometimes. And a lot of times these situations uh, are, are avoidable. You might read about someone not having their their gas turned on or a potential or a possible equipment malfunction. Let's be honest, some gear will malfunction. It's mechanical, um, things wear out from time to time. But with proper maintenance and service, you can greatly reduce this risk. To further reduce problems during diving, it's best for you to check your gear before you get in the water. And we like to call that a function check. So after you properly assemble all your gear, it's time to do your function check. It's very simple, doesn't take a lot of time, and ensures that your gear is ready to dive. So after you put everything together and everything is secured in place, um, you're going to turn on your gas. Well, the first thing you do is check that pressure gauge and make sure that you've got a full tank. 
You know, sometimes from time to time, people think they're being real nice by putting the caps back on the tanks. Well, when a dive master or some people or our folks here at the shop see a tank with a cap on, our assumption is that it's full, so we will not fill it. Um, and you might be that diver who, who got a tank that wasn't filled. So check your, uh, your, your gas. Okay, so once you've got your insurance, you've got a full tank, it's time to check your regulators. And we like to breathe off of both regulators to ensure that they work. We just don't hit the purge button. We like to breathe them. But to start, we'll, we'll quickly hit the purge button, make sure that anything, blow any debris or anything that might be in there out of the regulator, and then we'll, we'll breathe both regulators, both second stages, uh, making sure that they work uh, properly. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to check our uh, BC, and we're going to make sure that our BC fully inflates. Uh, so we'll hit the low-pressure inflator, fill it all the way up, and then we want to make sure that that uh, overpressurization valve releases. And then finally, we want to uh, actually uh, deflate the BC to make sure that the deflate works properly as well. So a very simple uh, uh, function check uh, of, of making sure you've got enough gas, making sure both your regulators uh, breathe, and, and then also making sure that your BC properly inflates, overpressurization valve releases, and that it properly deflates. Now, I do a function check between every dive. If I'm on a boat and I change out my tanks, I will do a function check between the dives. Who knows? Something could have happened uh, at the end of the dive or as I changed out the, uh, the equipment, something might have happened. So I'll do a function check before I get in the water. Also, uh, one of the things that you might want to do is, is on a boat, sometimes we turn off our, our air after we do our check on a boat ride out so that we're not inadvertently losing gas to some sort of uh, uh, maybe the regulators uh, leaning up against something and, and you can't hear that leak. But if I turn off my gas, I will purge uh, the, the regulator so that um, the, the needle goes back to zero because it's too easy to assume that you have your gas turned on and uh, when you've turned it off, that needle will still stay uh, where you're at. Uh, a lot of boats, uh, the dive master will change tanks for you. Um, we don't like to do that. We like to touch our own gear and, and pull it assemble. But even if your dive master does do your, uh, your change over your tank, it's still uh, your responsibility to do your function check before you go. Function check, simple, easy, and you should do it before every dive. There's a very interesting article in Hakai magazine titled Wasted, and it was written by Sasha Chapman. Sasha is an award-winning journalist who writes about the global food system uh, with the uh, purpose of shedding light on the way we live and the environment we live in. The article is also available in audio format if you want to listen to it. It starts out by stating that 27% of the fish caught disappear. Now to shed some light on uh, this, the article discusses the Seafood Expo North America, and it's an exposition that draws 22,000 people from 50 countries to buy, sell, and market consumable marine products. 
Why so many people? Well, in 2016, world fish production was 171 million tons, or 20.3 kilograms for every human on the planet. For those of you who want to know, compare kilograms to pounds, that's 44.7 pounds, one kilogram equaling 2.2 pounds. Sasha's description of the expo is enlightening, and she talks a little bit about the difference between food loss and food waste. Food loss happens between harvesting, processing, manufacturing, and distribution. Retailers and consumers discard food. That's food waste. In Canada, the article estimates that Canadians are wasting $50 billion a year in food. For seafood, disappearance happens at every link. Fishers may waste up to 50% of their, uh, their catch by discarding bycatch. Sometimes government regula- regulations require them that they throw dead or dying fish back uh, to avoid uh, quotas, uh, maybe the wrong species or the wrong uh, sizes. Economics factors into it. Some fish are more valuable and space on the boats are limited, so they'll, uh, they'll discard uh, some of their catch. Then you get to the retailers and consumers who waste. Uh, overbuying is an issue. Packaging to sell more, and then uh, we don't use it, and we throw it out. Restaurants, they sell abundance, uh, abundance of, uh, of uh, food um, that gets thrown away. Handling and storage, perishables. 50% of seafood loss happens in some parts of the world where there is poor infrastructure. And then there's date labeling. If the, uh, the sell-by date is too short, uh, it's not bought and it gets thrown away. Here's a powerful quote from the article. The bottom line is that it is sometimes cheaper and easier to waste food in the current system than to find a use for it. Sending food to a landfill seems more convenient than donating it to a recovery organization. There's a lot more information in this article, and I encourage you to either give it a read or a listen. It's very sad to think about how in this day and age, with species under threat, we simply waste 27% of the seafood taken from the ocean. Time for another installment of Sea Hunt. It's still alive. Today, I'm going back to the beginning of the series, the premiere episode, and that aired on January 4th, 1958. The episode was titled 60 Feet Below. Interestingly, it was the second of two pilot episodes uh, that were produced to sell the show to the networks, but it was the first one to air. The other pilot episode aired on February 1st, 1958, or the fourth episode of Sea Hunt. 60 Feet Below starts out with Mike Nelson working at Marine Land of the Pacific. 
He is diving in a tank using that iconic Jack Brown dive mask, which he puts on at the start of every show. And his job in this uh, first episode was to force feed a blue shark that was not eating. Well, while he's diving in the tank, he feels a vibration that turns out to be a sonic boom from an experimental Navy jet. Well, then he shifts to scenes of the jet flying and doing some of the tests, and it's having a little bit of difficulty, and when it can't come out of a dive, it lands in the water and sinks in 60 feet of water. Well, the Navy wants their jet back, so uh, they want to get a boat out there uh, to salvage the um, the jet, but it's going to take a while for it to get out there. But the captain of the boat says that they don't have much time because the weather's going to blow uh, blow up uh, really quickly, and they need to get a marker on on the jet uh, before the weather picks up. So they're talking back to the base, and the, there's the supervisor back there who says there's only one man who can do this, and he says, "Get me Mike Nelson." And the other guy says, "Who's Mike Nelson?" Well, that's where we learn that Mike is an ex-Navy frogman. Well, the next scenes, Mike uh, is heloed out to the to the uh, boat that's on station, and he brings his dive gear with him. He, they call it. He's bringing a couple of lungs with him. Uh, he gets to the boat. He gears up. He tucks this big second knife into his dive belt, dives down, and he finds that plane. Well, while he's on uh, putting the marker on the plane, uh, everyone up to this point thinks that the pilot didn't survive, but he's not dead. The pilot is in there breathing uh, his O2 um, in the cockpit. Uh, it's, it's watertight, so he, he's still in there. And Mike uh, asks him on a, uh, how much uh, oxygen he has left, and the pilot says he has uh, 15 minutes left. Um, so Mike uh, sends a slate up saying pilot's alive, uh, 15 minutes O2, but, but they want to now try to bring the plane up. So the first thing they do is they, they try to winch it up, and they have this really little winch on the boat, and you're like, well, how's that going to work? And you see the winch uh, uh, burn out or, or seize up. So the next thing they do is they send a, an axe down, and you see Mike trying to smash the canopy. Well, that doesn't work either. Interestingly, they had this underwater telephone, and I'm not exactly sure how that, w- that worked, but I might do a little research on that. So the last thing they're going to try now is to uh, cut a hole in the fuselage of the jet that will then allow them to release the canopy. Um, Mike gets that job done just as the water was flooding the cockpit, and uh, he hands the pilot his other lung uh, so the pilot can breathe, And while he's getting the uh, pilot out of the uh, cockpit, he grabs a monitoring camera from the jet, which they think the the Navy might want, along with a a pair of baby shoes that were in there, um, and he gets the pilot to the surface. Um, The only uh, injury to the pilot is a broken eardrum, uh, and uh, the, the pilot survives. Now, the show was directed by Felix Feist, and uh, the technical di- advice on deep diving was by Perry Bivens and Courtney Brown. Interestingly, Perry Bivens is also credited in the cast. And he's also married to Zale Perry, who we know uh, did a lot of the, the diving in subsequent uh, episodes of Sea Hunt. Also, there is uh, an actor called, uh, named Whit Bissell. You'd recognize him. And there's also an actor, Peter Leeds. You'd also recognize him. 
So that's a recap of uh, the first ever episode of Sea Hunt, and we'll be doing more in the future on installments of Sea Hunt. It's still alive. Hope you enjoyed episode 11 of Scuba Shack Radio. Thanks again for listening. Also, um, we'd very much appreciate it if uh, you have the opportunity to go out and, and rate Scuba Shack Radio. Rate it at your favorite uh, podcast application. Particularly, we'd like to see some more ratings on uh, iTunes if you can get it out there. So if you have some time, please uh, go out and give us a rating. Just wanted to let you know that as of uh, today, Scuba Shack Radio is, has been listened to in 19 countries. So that's the power of the internet these days to be able to get stuff out there and uh, get our message out worldwide. So we're going to continue to talk a little bit about scuba diving, the, uh, the uh, world we live in, um, and the climate and the ocean health. And also we'll talk a little bit about the history of diving from time to time. So until next time, uh, bye, and thanks for listening to Scuba Shack Radio. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Talk to you next time.